everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking what are you thinking and this week we are thinking and chatting with Dan from VetLed. This is actually the first in a series of conversations we're having with um, many of the the team uh, from VetLed and we're really excited to be working with them and chatting with them. Dan does not have a veterinary background, he has a background in sport and also uh, was a pilot. Um, and, but what's really interesting is our conversation uh, uh, surrounding human factors really just shows how there is so much crossover um, uh, for many different uh, professions. In our clinical segment today, we're going to be starting a series of conversations about coagulation. So, listen, thanks so much um, for uh, joining us on the podcast today. I think, as we always do, um, and I think your story might even be more interesting than some of the the normal stories we have, but um, if you could just start by introducing yourself um, to the audience and just giving us a little bit of an idea about your background, if that's okay. So, hi, everyone. Uh, Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Um, So, uh, yeah, my name's Dan Tipney. I'm uh, one of the founding partners at VetLed. And um, VetLed is uh, a company that offers non-clinical support and training for veterinary for ter- veterinary teams, for whole practices, um, and for individuals. And it's all based around the subject of human factors. Um, so I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk more about that um, as mm-hmm. a subject and everything that's contained within that um, as the session goes on. In terms of my background, um, I am not originally from a veterinary, um, sort of coming from a, a veterinary perspective. So um, going back some time, my original um, interest, my I suppose my original professional interest was, was sport. Um, so I was uh, a rower. Uh, I don't know if any of, many of our listeners know much about the, the, the sport mm-hmm. of rowing, but um, I suppose it's the effectively it's the art of going backwards in a boat, um, which always makes me think why. Why do we go backwards when I when I say it like that? I, but I, so I think, and for me and many people listening, I have never that has never crossed my mind. I okay. So yeah, I spent a lot of my years going backwards, um, and uh, which hopefully not metaphorically, but at least physically. And um, I got the opportunity. I was very lucky. I got the opportunity to represent Great Britain going back quite a few years, and it gave me a real passion, a real interest for human performance. I was very lucky to be surrounded by a lot of people who knew a lot about how people can perform at their best. And that is broken down in so many different ways. And I was fascinated that it goes so, so in depth into so many elements of who we are as a human being. So Mm. I was fascinated by that. Um, And I was then uh, a coach. So I coached athletes from, you know, kids at school through to international competitions. Um, And then sport being what it is as a, as a career, I suppose, a long-term career, I had to make some decisions. I also had a few injuries as well. Uh, I always wanted to fly. So I trained to be a pilot and I was a flying instructor for a few years. So I was teaching people to fly small airplanes. And then I was an airline pilot for um, nearly 10 years. And I suppose the thing is, if I stop the story there, if I just say, you know, um, I used to go backwards in boats and then I, I, I coached people to go backwards in boats and then I flew planes. And now I'm here talking about human factors and everything that contains and the work that I'm doing within um, veterinary practice. I can understand. I don't know, Scott. Well, I mean, so yes. I think so there's a few things first of all I wanted to let's not underplay the fact that it's actually very cool that um you don't have a veterinary background and you know in in the way that the majority of our guests do and actually I do want to just pay some tribute to that I wish that I could say you were the first sort of non-veterinary guest that isn't true we have had but you're the first male non-veterinary guest if that makes you feel any in any way special at all <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's um that's your that can be your claim to fame I think what's really, I mean, for me, that story could stop there. And I think a lot of people would be like, I mean, that's pretty cool. Like I don't, as as, as an outsider who's never gone backwards in a boat and has definitely never flown a plane, I would definitely be like, gosh, that's that's quite a CV already there, you know? Um, I think probably what the interesting part of that is, so that you could stop there and that would be podcast over. That's pretty cool. He's a good guy. So I think though, what's interesting is how you have used that, I'm sure, very diverse skill set, you know, doing what you've done. And then actually, how do we end up in veterinary practices? Because I think that's, that is a bit more of a stretch for me. And that's, that's, that's always, I always quite um, intrigued to sort of uh, understand almost the sort of reaction, the perception of those three things, you know, how does going backwards in boats and, and sports coaching and flying planes, you know, what does that have to do with 
performance and inventory teams. And, and actually, for me, explaining that link actually, for me, explains a lot about what human factors as a subject actually is. So if I go back to when I was like 12, when I started rowing, the world, as I'm sure many of us can remember at that age, was generally quite a simple place. Rowing was quite a simple thing. Uh, and you needed three things to be good in a, you know, to be, to be good um, going backwards in a boat. You needed to have good technique, like almost any sport, even sports that don't appear to have any technique. As soon as you start comparing Usain Bolt running to someone sprinting for the bus, you suddenly realize that every sport has, in, you know, in, in, in quite complex aspects mm -hmm. of technique. You need to be strong so that you can make the boat go fast. Mm -hmm. um, and you need to be fit so you can keep it going fast for more than just a few strokes at a time. And the thing is, that's not wrong. Those actually, as an equation, that is correct. If you, if you have those three things and you apply them effectively well together, then you probably will go quite fast backwards. Mm -hmm. And you, hopefully, if you go faster than the other people, you'll win. Um, and that, and, and, it, and it, in some ways, it is that simple. And for the first few years of me doing it, um, just, just through natural ability, it worked quite well. But by, by, by sort of my mid-teens, I was starting to see the impact of, those, of just focusing on those things. So if I just, the, the, the way of improving your technique, your strength or your fitness is just to train harder, to be better, to do, mm -hmm. you know, do more, push yourself more, learn more skills. And, and it does work, but then eventually you do start getting ill. You start getting injured. But the problem is, as a 15 year old in a sports team, it isn't cool to talk about emotion. No one's mm -hmm. like, no, no. Why are you talking about emotion? Just go and pull harder. It, it wasn't normal necessarily to see that as a means of improving your ability to, to, to perform. But of course mm -hmm. we know a lot more now that, the more we understand our emotional response and because of the direct impact that has on our physiology and our ability mm -hmm. to function, it's incredibly important that we do. And as well as that, we've got things like our communication with the team, the people we're working with, the way we support each other, um, the way we communicate with our coaches and our physios and all this stuff that has nothing to do with technique, strength or fitness, but has everything to do with the outcome. So I almost imagine these two hands. I almost imagine in one hand, you've got the technical things, the, the mm -hmm. technique, the strength, the fitness, the things you need to be mm -hmm. good as a, an athlete, as a rower. And then on the other hand, I've got the outcomes I want to achieve going fast, backwards and winning. And then you've got this gap in the middle that's filled by all that stuff around, you know, my human needs, physiologically, emotionally, mentally, the way I'm communicating, the way I'm supporting team members. And you have to consider that gap. And you have to be able to visualize it. As a coach, for me, it was very much that approach. It was it was um, human first, athlete second. It was make sure that we, we, we attend to the seemingly obvious, simple things about rest and sleep and food and water. Mm -hmm being open about how you feel and not seeing that as a weakness, but seeing that as a strength, attending to those needs. I was already very interested in that, but when I started flying, I, it took me straight back to being 12 again, back to the technical things. You know, um, I learned to fly a plane. I had a flying lesson and, I, and I, I enjoyed flying the plane. I enjoyed learning about wings and engines and hydraulics and as geeky as it sounds about rules of the air and all this stuff. These are the mm -hmm. things you need. And that, that one hand, the things you need to pass your exams to have a license. But what I didn't realize was that I got into a, profession that already had a really good understanding of that metaphorical gap between those two things and that was because that since the introduction of, of black box recorders i don't know how much if that's an expression you're familiar with actually i think that's probably a term that people understand because i think that's very well publicized on the media when a plane crashes they're looking for the black box right like i mean that would be my understanding from the news yeah <laughs> is that exactly. right and i think and i think actually yeah, the media have done a pretty good job over the last 20 years or so of, of making you know of making everyone aware of what that that um what that expression means and it's very important in a way because it has actually i think given us a, a common language around this um ironically they're actually not black they're bright orange um because they're <laughs> found um in how disappointing yeah, no, sorry to burst that little bubble there um, that's an exclusive we still right. call them black boxes okay um, and black box recorders since the 1970s have given gave our aviation opportunity to really, really understand when things don't go as expected or as planned. Um, they got the opportunity to not only know what happened, but why it happened. And to their surprise, what they found was that certainly by the 19, late 1970s, 1980s, the vast majority of accidents in aviation were primarily attributed to human factors. So what I mean by that is that there was no indication, the majority, about, we're saying about 80% of the time, there was no indication that anyone involved had a lack of technical knowledge or skill. They all knew what they were doing. There was no indication that, that technical failure primarily caused the crash. It might have contributed, mm -hmm. but it didn't primarily cause it. We're saying that 80% of the time, the primary contributing factors were something to do with us as human beings, whether that's yeah. about communication, whether it's about teamwork, leadership, mm -hmm. our, our decision-making, mm -hmm. our ability to know what's going on around us, whether it's about... Uh, our, our emotional response and how that impacts our ability to think, to communicate, make decisions. Um, and that relates, of course, to stress, to, to all sorts of different things, to fatigue, 
to hydration, to nutrition, to our, our memory, our ability to remember things, our ability mm -hmm. to pay attention to things and how, how all of that stuff relates to the, the environments in which we work and how they've been designed. That's what, that's what they were finding that 80% of the accidents were attributed to primarily. I think they were expecting to find that it was because people didn't know what they were doing or technical failures. And so aviation had an opportunity for about 10 years um, but with NASA, the American Space Agency, different universities and different airlines to really un unpick that and understand more about it. So by the early 90s, the, it was the first profession to have an international mandatory requirement to address this um, as, a, as a general topic. So I got the opportunity to train um, as a pilot, to train other pilots and cabin crew members in this area. I then got an opportunity to deliver a similar form of training for healthcare teams. Um, and then five years ago, um, about five years ago, um, myself and, and Rue, who you're, who you're, I know is um, on a, a future um, uh, recording, uh, Rue as a vet, um, who I met in Edinburgh while I was coaching. Uh, she was rowing also um, in the boat club uh, at Edinburgh University, coaching there. We got talking a lot about all these different things as a means of, 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 of helping people um, and ultimately yes it enables um, the teams to help patients and look after them more safely but actually fundamentally it's 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 these are things that that weren't in the in the mainstream and were a lot yeah. of the reasons that we knew people were finding it difficult and that's that's what led us to start um vet led i i mean i just as you were as you're sort of telling this this story um it's so obvious, I think, as you start to to unpick it, it's so obvious that the the immediate connection with veterinary medicine actually. I just wanted to pick up on a few things that you'd you'd said. So I think this idea about the psychology, uh, the the human. Well, I don't I, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but you you talked about you know being fast, rowing backwards, um, moving backwards, um, you know the strength and all that kind of stuff. But then these other factors that were just as important. And I think you know I, 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 even even in the media again i'm aware of of that within sports people certainly with the olympics recently you know uh, listening to people being interviewed they're always thanking their team and their team always involves more than just a coach but they've got a nutritionist or, or you you know whatever else that goes along with that and then also um obviously emma radicano who was in the uh you know wimbledon and then obviously won the, the u.s open it was very clear, knowing very little about the details of the, the the situation, it was very clear that there were other factors that played into her withdrawal from Wimbledon that I'm sure were partly, you know, there was other other elements of training that she needed from a kind of psychological point of view to just, just again, she was a teenager and, and be, being so overwhelmed by the, the magnitude of what she was doing, I'm sure, quite rightly, you know, I think that's quite, quite reasonable. And then the other thing that I thought was just so nail like you kept talking about hydration, nutrition, and actually all I could think about was, I know so many vets and nurses who just get to the end of the day and they're like, oh, I didn't, when did you have a, we didn't have a drink. You know, we do this thing in our office now, we do shots, but with water, because so we'll do, we'll like literally chug water, like a sh we'll do it as a group because people forget to drink. And how ridiculous is that? You know, and, and that, I kept thinking, God, obviously a lot of the stuff you do, well, th th there's a lot of kind of, um, you know, it's not s straightforward, but actually a lot of this is also just very simple. You need to eat well, sleep well, drink well, and actually we don't do any of those things well, right? You know, so I, I think there's so much there that is so transferable and so relevant, so relevant to the veterinary field. Absolutely. And I, and I think what's what's often so interesting about this is when whenever I do a sort of an introductory session about these and we start talking about some of the principles, one of the first questions I'll often get a chance to ask people is something along the lines. I'll ask a question something that goes something along the lines of, um, you know, what does a good day look like? And when I when I mean a good day, what are the ingredients towards a good day? And and having had the chance to ask this to aviation teams, healthcare teams, veterinary teams, yeah, you know, I, I don't know how many times, but but certainly um, well, several hundred at least. They're, they're, they're on on the whole, what you hear is is almost you know is, is very very comparable every time. Um, people people talk to you about the impact of 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 breaks and and yeah physiological needs essentially they talk about the base of their pyramid as it were you know being able to get rest to be able to to get food to get water and um, they talk about the impact of emotions and the, the support from their teams and communication they talk about getting feedback they talk about all yeah. well, you know variations of those things very rarely do they talk about anything to do with their technical or clinical mm -hmm. skills or knowledge mm -hmm. and that's not because it's not important it's just because mm -hmm. as a human being when you ask someone that very openly for mm -hmm. most people, most of the time, that's not the first thing that comes to our mind. 
the thing is that then what you end up with, what you end up with is this list, this list of stuff. And you look at it, you take a step back and it's very easy to look at that list and go, well, that's obvious. We all know that. We all know that, you know, as human beings, particularly people, you know, particularly, you know, vets, veterinary nurses, people who are um, clinically trained to know more about this maybe than the average person know about the importance of, of hydration, nutrition, rest, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and, you know, um, knowing about the impact of, of our, our, more, our social needs and our emotional needs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not stuff that we don't already know, but what we do know is that when we look at examples of events that don't go to plan, whether it's in healthcare or whether it's in aviation, or in fact, whether it's in any safety critical profession, such as the military, the police, the fire service, the oil and gas industry, that the vast majority of an unexpected adverse events are primarily caused by those things, even though you look at them and go, mm-hmm. they're obvious. Mm-hmm. And I like that idea. I like the idea that this is seemingly obvious things that actually the complexity doesn't lie in recognizing that they're important. The complexity lies in actually what we do about it. Mm-hmm. And that's always a two pronged um, discussion. There's the people side and there's the system side, mm-hmm. because there's a reality that they both play a responsibility. And it's, and it's, it's easy sometimes for, for, to try and focus on one or the other. You know, it, traditionally, it might be easy for a, a management team to say that people just need to be more, you have mm-hmm. that expression, dot, 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 mm-hmm. people need mm-hmm. to be more mm-hmm. aware of the fact that they, you know, need to stop and take a drink and aware of the fact that they need to be able, how they speak to each other, aware mm-hmm. of, aware. Uh, and, and then a lot of the, the flip side would be, but, you know, the, the system needs to take a responsibility for the impact Absolutely. of workload, of the number of staff we've got, of the efficiency in the team we're working in, of all these things that actually enable us to do that. And it's a discussion about both of those, but it's taking a very conscious and deliberate um, uh, approach to those things. Um, yeah. And rather than just assuming that, that, hey, look, we're all professionals, we're all adults, yeah. so we, we'll, we'll get that stuff right, because history yeah. shows us that we don't. And I, Well, no, absolutely not. And I think, but, but also, I think we're conditioned to think that we shouldn't be getting things wrong and i think that's part of the problem too actually we're at, we're at, at the end of the day we are just human beings and 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 so we i think we we need to do, we, as you're saying you do as much as we can to kind of prevent against some of these issues i think it's so interesting even without knowing the statistics i could have told you that thinking about the problems that come up in practice you know i can't think of any recent issue within our my own practice where there was a, a complaint to do with technical ability you know it is all the other stuff that that is um the issue and i i just love this idea of the the system taking responsibility that you know so it's not just all on the individual and i think that's really important too and i think but al- almost even more important in this day and age in this time and place within the veterinary profession where actually i think the individual is taking more and more of the the brunt of whatever because actually the system is faltering i'm afraid to say you know because that because there 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 are just so many issues with um providing adequate numbers of staff and and, and all these other things so i think it, when the system shakes and the system definitely has shook or whatever the word is shaked i don't know um especially over the last year i don't know if you agree but i i think that does put more pressure on the on the individual sadly I think you're, I think you're totally right. Uh, and I don't, sadly, what, what, well, not sadly, but the, the reality is that um, we work in, in what's, what's become known to, in this sort of, I suppose, that the wider field of, of safety and human factors. Um, veterinary, veterinary practice is, is, is generally what's known as, as a complex or complicated, but often what's a complex system. So a complex system is one where you cannot, you cannot just simply look at one issue and um, explain that as a determining sort of root cause of anything. Um, the opposite, I suppose, the, the other way of thinking about this is like um, a linear or, or simple system would be something like a, a car assembly line. On a car assembly line, if you've got a problem at the end, you can work back and find out where, where that initial problem arose, that that bolt wasn't put on properly, which meant that when the next one was put on, that bit fell off. And then, and then as a result, later on, the engine fell out something um we work in these complex systems where there's this very very um um dynamic interaction between equipment um processes procedures people and people come of course from the 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 owners and the carers um from the um from the people working from the patients as well um you've got this this almost this web of all these interactions coming from so many different angles and directions Mm -hmm. and then you've got all the external things that you just mentioned you know everything that we've been faced with particularly over the last 18 months and what we what we can't sometimes what i think what we're inclined to want to do is try and say 
I know we can solve all of this by addressing that. And, and the reality is we very rarely can. And it's not to be defeated and say there's no point with it. it actually, it's, it's even more of a reason to be continually curious and understand how those different systems are interacting with one another. We must take a systems approach and look at what the system can do to, to, to ease the experience of the teams in terms of within, within what's possible financially, the, the mm -hmm. workload, the, 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 the rotors, the shift patterns. We must be looking at how they can be provided with tools and systems that help make it easy to get it right and hard to get it wrong. Doing all those different things, we must be normalizing speaking up about concerns and providing training mm -hmm. and, and providing um, um, structures for that. So we, we must, as a system, be doing all those things, but no single one thing will solve any one thing. And, and I think we are inclined as humans to want to simplify things because a, a lot of another fundamental principle of human factors, another way of thinking about it, because there's so many different ways, because it's, again, it's such a huge subject. It's effectively an amalgamation of lots of subtopics is to think about the the, the, the gap that exists between, we talk about gaps, so there's two gaps. One is the gap between having the technical skills and achieving the outcome. The other gap to imagine is the gap between the world that we evolved to survive in and the world that we now have to perform in. So I'm going to pick an arbitrary number of 20,000 years ago because mm -hmm. 20,000 years ago was before the agricultural revolution, which is when the world started to, to shift mm -hmm. um, uh, exponentially towards where we are now. And it was after the cognitive revolution where arguably we became the species we, we sort of we are we, we know ourselves to be now of course this does depend on your um, people's uh, beliefs on the theories of evolution but based upon you know that i suppose the most commonly described um that that twenty thousand years ago is is a good place to start and twenty thousand years ago the world was very simple and we generally had to um, you know looking at for example why are human beings in professional environments not very good at looking after themselves Mm. because in a world 20,000 years ago we generally needed to just think about what was happening now or what was going to happen soon I need to run or fight or hide from that predator now I need to get food because I'm getting hungry and that was our world it was just survival mm. it was just you know we weren't we weren't we're not hardwired to have to look at a procedure list for a day and go oh uh well that looks busy uh if I don't get a break between two and three by the time I'm doing that procedure at five I won't have had a break for 10 hours and based upon the the, the, the evidence my chance of making an error is going to be much higher even though logically that makes sense, that isn't how our brains work. We actually have to consciously intervene to do that because mm. our brains are hardwired to survive in that 20, world 20,000 years ago. And that explains many of the challenges we face. We talk mm -hmm. a lot about cognitive biases, about reasons that we make assumptions in practice and can, can come up with the wrong decision. We talk about our emotional hijacking and our emotional response to things. Mm -hmm. Again, because it served, they, they also, those things served us a good purpose in that world 20,000 years ago. They actually present challenges in almost every situation in the world we're mm -hmm. in now. And being very consciously aware of the gap between those two worlds actually helps to, to explain a lot of what we're talking about and, you know, and, and why we need to develop systems that, that very intentionally um, mitigates for that gap. It makes a huge amount of sense and it's, ma it's so interesting. So two things I can draw on just from my own personal experience is, is, is this. I, over the last week, and this is, not, um, this is absolutely true, I have been looking on Rightmove, other apps are available, for houses in the Outer Hebrides, right? Just because, for many reasons. Fundamentally, I've said so many times to friends over the last few weeks and months, see if we just moved to an island in the Outer Hebrides, it would just simplify my existence so much. And that would that's exactly what I feel like I need. I, I need to take myself out of all of this and just exist as a family on an island and that'll be fine. Now, obviously that is oversimplifying that, but that must be to do with my body being like, just get out of here. And then for me, the other just get out of here moment is, sadly, I have been in practice over the last year and literally thought, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna have to just walk out. I'm just gonna have to leave because I can't, I just can't do this. I am just going to have to do the one thing that I can control, which is just run and get in the car and then just drive away. Do you know what I mean? Now I'm not jo I'm I'm really I'm 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 making that sound slightly maybe jokey, but that really is how I have felt on multiple occasions. And I know for a fact I'm not the only person, you know, in vet and practice that has just thought, I think I'll just go because this is too much. You know? Um and so that's and that must be to do with that 20,000 years ago thing or whatever. <laughs> so I mean, honestly, if, the more I think about it, the more we come back to it. And you think about, again, we have got the same biological piece of kit that we had if we if we choose to believe that, which which, again, you know, um, there are, of course, there are alternative theories. But 
if we choose to believe that we essentially have the same biological piece of kit in terms of our brain and our body that we had 20,000 years ago, then you, and you think about the difference, um, particularly in just how stimulated we constantly are, you know, and of course that's become significantly worse in the last 20, well, you know, it hasn't it allowed us, to, it has had its benefits, but things like smartphones and technology, as well as the continuous demands from, from the patients, from, um, from the clients, from, from the team, from the circumstances, from the, you know, and, and also the thing with healthcare, and certainly this has been a, a big issue within human healthcare and, and is, you know, a, a factor within, within veterinary healthcare as well, that the more we can do for patients, the more that the technology, you know, our ability to do, you know, as, 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 as um, medical advancements um, enable us to do more, our ex the expectations to do more increases and the whole, the, the complexity of the world is getting more and more and more and more, but we've, we're not, and, and yes, there is, there is, you know, some theories around epigenetics and, and, and how, of course, we, we, we can, we have neuroplasticity and we can adapt to our environment very effectively, but we still have the same fundamental emotional response. We still have the same cognitive process, sort of hardwired um, processes, and we still have the same needs um, uh, in terms of our physiological needs, our needs to feel safe on our needs, yeah. our social needs that we did in that world. And, and that can, and, and I think the, the main thing for me is bringing a very con the two words I often think are conscious and deliberate. Mm. We have to have a very conscious and deliberate approach as a system and as an individual for, mm. for how we manage and mitigate the gap between those two worlds. And that, yeah. that comes in so many different forms. It comes yeah. in how we design our protocols or procedures. It comes in how we, how we manage or how we, how we intend to manage our, our breaks and our, our, our working patterns. It comes in how we in how we expect to have conversations. For example, I know it's something that Helen might talk a bit more about mm. around if if someone perceives someone else's behaviour to be uncivil. Um, mm. These are all things that, at a system level and an, an individual level, we have to take a very conscious and deliberate approach to because they all relate to our needs. Yeah, as, and, and our, as a human being. And I think, it, but I think what's you know, as you said, this is you know this this whole thing we could go on for days i suppose because there's so many parts of it but i think that's the point i think the point is that there's only so much an individual can do to withstand whatever x y and z or improve or whatever else and i what i love about the fact is and obviously that what you are what 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 vet led are offering is this um is is something that addresses not just one individual right so it's about because actually it's true you everyone needs to be on board with this stuff you know so right through to everyone you know so the 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 facilitation of breaks and i'm not telling you i'm i'm not telling you how to do your job this is just my perception but from my own experience the facilitation of breaks involves reception being aware that you are having a break because they need to not put the call through it involves the nurses knowing that you're on a break so they don't do x y and z it involves your manager knowing so it's about so i mean that's very simplistic but actually it doesn't just involve me saying i'm on a break because that doesn't work you know that that just doesn't work you know and because that's not the reality of practice and i think you know and it's but it's nice so i think if we are going to make change i think it has to be something that is carried by um by the whole team and i and, and that is again not being an expert in this at all i think that seems yeah, that's the only way to really to make meaningful change. And I think, um, you know, the other thing that I just really like about what you're saying is, and I think that's the thing that people need to kind of understand is some of what you're sort of saying, it's not it's not like this has to be like really complex stuff. Some of this is the more simple stuff, but actually it's the stuff we just completely we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I know that. Yeah, but you don't do that. Oh, yeah, no, but I know it. Yeah, but you don't do it. So, you know, and I think that, but, but, and, and again, that, that, so it, that, that in itself is perfect because it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be complex. I, I wanted to ask you something. I don't know. This is just something that came into my mind as well. Uh, you, uh, you know, as far as you bring this huge wealth of knowledge from, from various sectors, um, um, what, <laughs> how has it been in the veterinary? profession what how have you found that as a uh, compared to to rowing and piloting is it what how's that been have we been nice to you yeah on, on the, <laughs> in a word yes it's, it's actually been and I, and I um i mean this really genuinely it's been it's actually been it's been really inspiring uh, i remember this from from some of the early 
um, some of the early events that I went to, you know, sort of um, uh, some events at sort of Congress and different different things I went to, you know, really from, from very soon after we started this. Mm-hmm. I just remember particularly one one of them. Um, uh, in fact, I think I can remember which one. I think it might have been the first. Cause it's funny because I know you spoke to Ebony recently and it might have yeah. been the first uh, VSGD live event mm-hmm. in London. Mm-hmm. I can't remember when that was exactly, maybe three or four years ago, maybe. I think so. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that for me was quite early on in the vet led journey. And um, it maybe was that event or one around then that I really remember stopping and thinking, this is just such a contrast to any anything within the aviation world I've ever been to. And if anyone's listening, it's nothing, this isn't meant personally to anyone in that, because of course I've come from that, that world too, but there was something, there was something very um, sort of caring about the, 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 the general, you know, um, feeling of, of, of how everyone was, was towards each other. Um, and, and, you know, I, I remember thinking, you know, if this was, if this was a sort of an aviation equivalent, people will be talking much more about, um, you know, I don't know, pensions and taxes and all that sort of thing. <laughs> okay. and, and I'm like, and, and I just thought this is just such a world away from that. And, um, and that's, um, and that's just kind of one example, but, you know, when I, when I'm, when I'm involved with teams, um, um, in, you know, veterinary teams on a day-to-day basis, um, I'm always just really, really inspired by the dedication for the patient. Mm. The fact that almost everyone I've come across is in this profession for that you know for that reason um and and i think that's one of the biggest challenges we face is that all the stuff we've just talked about when you combine that with the fact that people have chosen to get into this profession for that you know for that reason mm. it exacerbates everything exacerbates the the the, the 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 subconscious um um sort of um not not sort of unwillingness but sort of um it, it is in a, in a sense to 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 put your own needs um mm. ahead of the patients even though again logically it sounds obvious actually to say that you know that expression secure your own oxygen mask first uh, before helping others there's a very good reason for that and it's and it's a, it's a very strong metaphor because we know that ultimately we are only in a good place to help to help um others whether they be animals or humans um if if we are in a good place ourselves but we know that the evidence would show us that those who are in caregiving professions, mm. whether that's again for human social care, healthcare, mm-hmm. um, psychology, or you know um, veterinary care, that you are statistically less likely to 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 look after yourself in the way that you need to to function at your best. And, and mm. um, but I found I, I found that level of dedication, that passion, that compassion very mm. inspiring. And I've and I felt very. I think initially I was a bit um, um, nervous about it that someone is coming from a totally sort of outside perspective mm. and inevitably yeah of course there are moments where i i've got to i've got to be very open and aware of the fact that there are going to be lots of moments when people might be thinking why are you saying that to us and who are you to say that and i've got to be curious about that but but on the whole i've been yeah i've been i felt very welcome good i'm pleased that's that's good and i think but what i think is nice actually is is your team is very diverse and um, so you're all bringing sort of different, you know, vet nurse, what, you know, other, it's nice that there's that kind of diversity within the, 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 the team that you have. Um, I did, I just wanted to, another thing you said, I just wanted to, I had the, I, when you mentioned, um, you know, meeting Rue back in Edinburgh, I presume in university days or whatever, I, so I went to Edinburgh University as well. And I, I get this like pang of like wonderful kind of warm, nostalgic, amazing, Edinburgh is such an amazing place to be um to be a student right so um I yeah that that definitely too and I get that every time I go to Edinburgh still um it makes me feel like that was a good time and a good place so um anyway um so I wanted to um there's there's a number of questions that we ask um our, our guests um and you are no different. <laughs> so um, if it's okay, um, we'll finish up with a few um, a few other questions for you. So my first question is, um, I'm interested with this. So my first question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs> I thought that might be coming. Um, <laughs> I, I guess there's, there's two parts to that. One is um, part of me doesn't really ever want to, I'm sure lots of people have said it before, but part of me doesn't really want to um to, to, to fully grow up because i think Fair there's enough. a suggestion that somehow i think there's an implication that growing up means that we almost become somebody different and we we kind of lose that connection i think losing the connection with with our with with 
who we were as children is almost a shame in a way and that's and that sounds almost a bit a bit deep but these questions kind of help make me think of it a little bit about that but there's also mm. the amusing side of it too that I don't want to get um too sensible um but I I think I've, I've spent quite a lot of time in the last few years really thinking about this idea of identity mm. and really really understanding who I you know who do I want to be and who do I want to work to be and I want to and it sounds again it might sound um um, sort of uh, cheesy almost but I'm, I'm working on being Dan mm. <laughs> and I'm working on um, in terms of who I be I don't whilst I'm very passionate about everything that we're doing at VetLed and, and the, my role and and every and everything that we're working towards um, and I'm ve- and I'm very um, uh, very delighted to be a father of two wonderful daughters mm. um, but I don't want to be defined by any of those things because I just don't mm. believe that that's the way in which we become the best version of ourselves so what i want to be when i grow up <laughs> as it were is is someone who really really deeply understands myself what i um what i what i what i really love mm. what what my greatest gifts are mm. um and and how i can be aligned with that in everything that i do and i want to be i suppose i want to be defined by by those those values by those by what you know what i love and and by the the gifts that, that i can bring and so yeah i'm sorry if that's not quite specific as you know that no, is genuinely no. what i what i'm what i'm working on and I, i'm not sure that that is something that i think that anyone can ever fully fully achieve but i think it's that it's that process that that i think i'll keep working on forever no i think actually that's it's interesting because a, a couple of not, no one has said that in, in the way that you have said it but i think um, a number of people have said Actually, Jenny from Vet Harmony said, I remember very specifically, she said, she said me, I want to be me, you know, and and with a similar sort of thing of that importance of working on yourself as an individual. And I really like that sort of, you know, I'm a father, that's an amazing thing. You know, for me, I'm a father, I'm a vet, that's an amazing thing. But I definitely, I'm actively trying to extract myself from that identity right now, because that's become such a a specific for me like such a connected like scott the vet you know and that actually i'm now having to like pull myself away from that a bit you know because it's become such such a thing anyway that's another story true and as a means of being the best vet the best father the best everything you know it's 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 not it's not about saying those things don't matter but it's about saying yeah. they do matter and actually the best the best that's the best way we can we can you know um deliver the most in in in, in all our roles as, as partners as parents as mm. professionals yeah yeah no it's true that's another podcast let's record again we'll talk about that um so obviously you've made some cool people are going to think you're very cool by the way this is just i think you're very cool so you've made some really cool decisions as far as your um your career um if you were to have your time again would you would you pursue those similar uh similar things would you go backwards would you fly planes and all of that um at, at, a, at a kind of macro level, I can only I, I can only say I'm extremely grateful for everything that's happened. Even though in moments I feel as though there are things that I reflect on and would you know at the time didn't feel like good decisions didn't go well, but because everything that's happened, every single moment has contributed to the moment I'm in now. I can only choose to say yes, mm-hmm. even though in lots of ways specifically I would look back and maybe say no and I don't think no. I've ever had a single day of my life where I've not had at least five things I you know I remember this really clearly when I was flying on the way home from the flying I really tried to as much as I could unless I was too exhausted to um to really sort of think you know what went well what would I do differently and I don't think I've ever had less than five things that I could consciously say I would have done differently from that day's flying and I think the same so on, on that level yes and in other levels um possibly um but but overall I I, I just think that everything that's happened has brought me to this point so i could only yeah. choose to say yeah <laughs> yeah, no, happen yeah again. no yes and i think that's true and i yeah i very and i feel very similar actually i think that that yes i definitely i you know I, you know I, this sort of having no regrets or maybe regrets is the wrong word but then, do i have regrets i mean i do do I, I definitely have lots of things i would have done differently so that's true though isn't it like i don't yeah, that's true. Can I just, sorry, really randomly, did you fly people on holiday? Yeah. Or, okay. <laughs> like, okay, that's, I just wasn't sure. Like, I, I, I was a big sure. holiday. Um, I flew for a big holiday airline. Um, so, okay. yeah, all the kind of, all the usual holiday destinations. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, 
so the yeah so i think um you know as we um lots of different you know things that you've done in your career and i'm sure um in many ways you've been, uh, you have been an inspiration along the way is there anyone that you can think of and it doesn't have to be to do with with jobs but is there anyone particularly that is an inspiration to you um well, I'm genuinely very inspired by everyone that I work with, you know, particularly mm. the vet-led team. I'm every day. I just, you know, there's there's um, different sort of forms of courage. I think that you know, I do see a lot of a lot of courage um, to try new things, to to not be afraid to not be afraid to fail. And I and I just think it's one of the it's one of the most amazing things I see a day to day with with lots of people that I come across and work with, but particularly those in the, in the vet-led team. Um, recently interestingly in terms of my own journey what i've been on someone that's inspired me that i found incredible is is someone called um and some people may not have come across this person but his name's mac mccartney and mm. he's um he's um uh, um someone who spent 20 years learning from in um indigenous leaders in um in in sort of uh, parts of mostly in parts of south america so indigenous leaders leaders from tribes in south america and learning about um there's sort of elements of, of leadership but particularly about sort of self-awareness and our connection to nature and to the to the, to the world mm-hmm. um and i've recently been very lucky to, to sort of um be taught and to to, to um, gain a lot from from mac um and uh, and so and i found that absolutely fascinating at a very fundamental level about who we are mm-hmm. um that has been very inspiring wow that's a indigenous leaders that's an interesting you know i'll need to i, I i'm not familiar with him but now i definitely will be with so, so I'm probably going on a slight tangent away from human factors but actually that... for me it does come straight back to it because who we are or who we were in our in our sort of um in our in our pre pre-agricultural uh, revolution world um tells us a lot about you know again um what we need and how we can be the best version of ourselves and also, today but i don't think that you can really go off on a tangent from human factors because i think it's so it's almost integral to kind of everything that we do in some way, right? Yeah. 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 And then that's the thing, as I said, it's an amalgamation of so many, of so many subtopics um, mm. about who we are fundamentally. So yeah, you're right. I suppose it's hard to sort of go on too many massive tangents because in some way it relates to everything. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, it, we're not, we're not uh, solving all the problems of the world in a, in a, in a podcast episode or you know and I, and I think you know one of the things that's so clear about the work that you do and actually I think probably the most important part of it that it's not just about one thing you know it's about a system of things and I love that you know it's about real change across the board um and that you know that yeah that that's so key I think to this but if you were to give one piece of advice to those listening wherever in the world they are um what would that piece of advice be? Ooh, yeah, and it's so hard to narrow it down, isn't it? We've said that this relates to so many things. Um, for me, it almost always comes back to curiosity. You know, be curious. And that can relate to so many different things. But having that word in your head, almost in every moment, you know, as, uh, as much as possible and every, every reflection, because it's so, so powerful. It means that we can be curious about if there's something we feel we could have done differently, we can be curious rather than be critical. I wonder why what I did made sense to me at the time. I wonder why what that other person did that didn't appear to make sense. I wonder why it made sense to them at the time. I wonder what they might've been going through. I wonder what I might be going through. And then at a deeper level, it's being curious about what do I really, really love? You know, what am I, what am I, you know, and, and what are my, what are my greatest gifts that I can, that I can bring? And, and if the more we tend, the more, the more we understand that, I think the more we can bring to every, every part of our lives. And it, it kind of ties in with something I was thinking about the other day. And again, actually, something that Ebony had said where, you know, being curious, you know, trying to th- think why does that other person think that way? Because actually, and she was talking about expectation and that idea that if people don't know what your expectations are, then they're probably going to fail and just really piss you off. And actually, what a shame to start at that level. And I, that, again, is a very simple thing unless you set expectations or people are aware of them, then it's all just a bit of a mess, really. You know, and I think that it, on a very simple level is actually really important too. So again, you know, asking why is that person behaving in that way or why are they doing it that way? Because it's just probably that there's been a lack of communication in some in some, in some some way. Okay, well, listen, um, 
thank you so much for chatting today i genuinely think um that that there's just so much there we could go on forever maybe we will have to do this again sometime um but it's it's just and, and what a wonderful kind of perspective you have um and actually so refreshing in in many ways that that you're not from that veterinary background I, I can only think that that's a benefit in our industry and 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 lovely that we can kind of have this um amazing team of people in vet led that are diverse and but are collaborating and working together in such a, a powerful way so I, I thank you very much for taking the time to chat uh, thanks scott thanks very much for having me it's been great okay so in our clinical segment today um we're actually going to start a bit of a journey through coagulation and this might take up a, a while there's no way we're going to be able to cover this in in one segment so this will definitely uh, go over quite a number of of clinical segments so to speak coagulation is i suppose is it can be a challenge for us um physiologically understanding it all and also practically for me there are some key questions that we have to ask ourselves when we're talking about coagulation disorders and when we're so generally when we're presented with a patient that we suspect has a bleeding disorder. So obviously there are lots of reasons that patients will present to us bleeding. Not every single one of them will have a coagulopathy, obviously. But if there's signs of a patient bleeding inappropriately, so they haven't been hit by a bus um, and they're just spontaneously bleeding, for instance, then definitely we'd have to be alerted to the fact that there may be a, a problem there. The questions we have to answer fundamentally are, is the bleeding disorder a problem of primary hemostasis, a problem of secondary hemostasis, or a problem with both parts of hemostasis. And we talk about primary hemostasis and secondary hemostasis, and, and that's a really nice, straightforward way of looking at coagulation. And really, when we're talking about, and also makes it practical, when we're talking about primary hemostasis, we're talking about basically platelets. Is there a problem with platelet number or function primary hemostasis or is there a problem with secondary hemostasis and really when we're talking about secondary hemostasis we're talking about all the clotting factors that come after that and it, it really does probably work in that order primary hemostasis is what generally happens first and the platelets are kind of a first line of defense and then the secondary parts of coagulation come after that there's multiple ways of looking at coagulation cell-based models complex models things that look very complex um and it's certainly not appropriate to explain in a podcast for sure but really when we think about what we can actually look for in practice then primary hemostasis we can look for platelets we can look under the microscope and actually see how many platelets there are and if actually practically if we want to look at platelet function in practice, we can do things like a buccal mucosal bleeding time. And when it comes to secondary coagulation, we've got the ability to measure uh, PT or prothrombin time and APTT or activated partial thromboplastin time. So those are both actual tests that we can actually sometimes even run in-house that measure different parts of secondary coagulation. And we'll go on to talk about that in a bit more detail. So actually, from a practical point of view, that's what we can actually look at. That's what we can actually measure. Generally speaking, I think when we're approaching a patient with a suspected coagulation disorder, some of the key things we need to be looking at from when we're particularly taking a history, what questions are important. Previous bleeding episodes, that's important. Has this patient had problems with bleeding before um has this patient had problems with bleeding associated with routine procedures so maybe things that have not been evident in everyday life that have then suddenly been a problem when that patient's gone in for uh, a spay or castration or um something like that you know a, a problem with um a, a routine procedure that was not maybe predicted What's the anatomical distribution of the bleeding? Is the bleeding coming from a massive cut in the dog's paw 
where it's cut it on glass and actually that's not a coagulopathy that's just you know a cut pad um or is this spontaneous bleeding from the gums or um uh other parts of the body where there isn't a reason for that bleeding to be happening things like uh the age of presenting of the bleeding problem is important because obviously younger patients may present more likely with um, some congenital or uh, coagulopathic disorders um, versus uh, older patients who are more uh, more unlikely uh, to then suddenly just um, uncover their congenital uh, problems. Is the patient on any medication? Has there been exposure to toxins? Obviously, vitamin K, uh, antagonist, rodenticide toxins, rat poisons are a, a really good uh, example of that. And potentially, maybe, breed, you know, always, uh, you know, we don't want to, to make a diagnosis based on breed ever, um, but certainly some breed-related uh, problems can be there. And a good example of that would be Doberman. So, you know, Dobermans are predisposed to developing von Willen Brand's disease, which is a problem with platelet function. Um, so that, again, not every Doberman that walks in your door is going to have that condition, but certainly that, that may be a part of what alerts you to a particular problem. Physical examination is also important. Uh, and again, the distribution of the problem as far as where you're seeing the bleeding um, is, 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 can, be, can be helpful. So are we seeing this bleeding present with the skin, so bruising, a petechiation of the gums, uh, bleeding around the, the margins of the teeth, um, bleeding into the eye, bleeding into the joints, um, bleeding into the urine, bleeding into the feces. Um, we tend to see, for instance, as an example, um, petechiation, which are those little pinpoint uh, sort of hemorrhages. They're most common on the gums and, and they're usually not always, but they're usually because of a problem with platelet number, for instance. Um, so that's not that's not absolute, but certainly um, petechiation would be more common with that sort of um, disorder. Whereas problems with coagulation factors may be more likely to cause larger bruising on the skin, which we, we call ecchymosis, um, or hematomas, or bleeding into the joints, or bleeding into body cavities. So problems with, with coagulation factors, problems with secondary coagulation, are maybe less likely to cause those uh, petechiation or pinprick uh, hemorrhages that we see uh, on the gums. A few kind of housekeeping rules with coagulation um, as far as sample collection. And I do think this is really important before we kind of delve into the, the details of some of the disorders. I think it's really important for us to, to make sure that we get it right, because actually there are lots of problems that we can potentially um, lead or not well potentially cause um by sort of sample uh, sample collection that can definitely be a, a potential um issue it's a good idea if you are going to 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 measure uh, parameters of coagulation to do that before you sort of intervene with with therapy and um, so if you can get samples if you can have a little bit of foresight i know it's difficult sometimes in an emergency but if you can have a little bit of foresight and get samples prior to therapeutic intervention that definitely is helpful there are sometimes quite um unusual or or not as, as common as our normal sampling techniques as far as sort of tube selection and different things so it's really important if you are going on to do things like individual factor analysis definitely checking with the lab before you're you're submitting if if possible always trying to do it from a clean venipuncture every single time you stick a needle into a vessel that's ultimately activating coagulation in some way so that breach of the of the vascular wall will activate coagulation so trying to make sure that you're doing a clean stick uh, as much as possible is important as I said, tube selection is really important. So uh, we tend to use EDTA blood to assess platelets and platelet number. And we tend to use sodium citrate to do secondary coagulation factors. But often 
that uh, sodium citrate that needs to be separated, sometimes even frozen, uh, to be sent to the lab, for instance, for individual fat factor factor analysis. So just really important we know the samples that we that we need. There's often a question actually, depending who where you're listening, whereabouts in the world you're listening. Um, in the UK, we don't use a lot of these uh, vacutainers where the needle and uh, and the the collection or device are, are connected to each other and there, there's kind of a suction into the into the vacutainer. But actually in some studies comparing vacutainer collection versus normal needle and syringe connection collection, there wasn't a massive difference between between those two between those two things. When it comes to platelets, it's really important that we are aware of the way in which we take samples and how that will affect platelets. Uh, and again, that comes back to the point that I made, you know, every single time we stick uh, a vessel with a needle, there's going to be some activation of coagulation and platelets will start to adhere to the, the vascular wall. So there's there's lots of reasons potentially that we can disturb not only the secondary coagulation, but also the number of platelets um, that we see. And when fundamentally we are assessing platelet number, if we are not seeing uh, the number of platelets that we expect to see, and most typically when we think about how do we assess platelet number, Often, the quickest and easiest thing that we're going to do to assess platelet number is we are going to put that blood into a machine and the machine is going to tell us what the platelet number is. Now, that machine is very clever and very good at doing lots of things. What machines are often not very good at doing is assessing platelet number. And there's a number of reasons for that. First and foremost, if those plates, platelets already are starting to clump together, and that's their job fundamentally, if those platelets are going to start clumping together, then the machine's not going to be able to be sort of picking that apart. And so it may detect a very small number of free platelets and give you a very low platelet number. If your machine is giving you a low platelet number, the first thing to do is to look at a blood smear. And you may be able to see not as many platelets as you would like in the body of the smear. But if there are big platelet clumps, then that's likely then to be a misrepresentation of the true platelet number. Um, and, and so, and that's really important because the machine can't necessarily do that. You are able to say, well, hold on, there's not that many platelets in the body of the smear. But there's loads of these platelet clumps at the feathered edge of the of the smear, um, and and that is likely then to misrepresent the number of platelets. So even if you're seeing uh, less uh, platelet uh, platelets uh, than you would maybe like to see, if you're seeing uh, lots of platelet clumps, then you should feel uh, you should certainly feel uh, reassured by that. So the first thing to do is to uh, make a smear. The second thing I would say is, if you're seeing a significantly reduced number of platelets from the machine and from the smear, uh, particularly in patients that have not got clinical signs of, of bleeding, then one of the next things I would do is repeat the sample, take a fresh sample, get a clean stick um, and, and, and assess the whole thing, uh, assess the whole thing again. Ultimately, what you're looking for really is for there to be more than five platelets per high power field under the microscope. Because really, if there's more than five platelets per high power field or more than 50 times 10 to the nine platelet, uh, as far as what the, the figure the, the analyzer will give you, 50 times 10 to the nine, platelet counts above 50 times 10 to the nine are, are not likely to cause spontaneous hemorrhage. Um, and so, you know, patients with more platelets than that are not likely to have petechiation and ecchymosis and, and to be bleeding from their gums, etc. Um, and that's important. The majority of, of, of conditions that affect platelet number particularly will normally cause 
your platelet count to be much lower than that. But one of the fundamental things that you need to be doing is first of all, being sure that your uh, platelet count is accurate. And there's lots and lots of reasons that that will not be the case. Uh, and again, remembering that the machine is always is not always your best friend. Um, the machine is very clever, as I said, but not always your best friend when it comes to accurately uh, assessing platelet numbers. So really important that that is what your your first port of call is being accurate with that. One of the, the most common reasons for um, uh, for us to be concerned about platelets is, is as I said, fundamentally to do with platelet number. Uh, and so now that we've kind of got, got some of the introductory bits out of the way, um, next time we'll, we'll delve into uh, thrombocytopenia, the reasons for thrombocytopenia and how we go about um, managing some of these problems. Big thank you again to, to Dan uh, for chatting today and we look forward to, to uh, having our conversations with other members of the, the VetLed team. To learn more about VetLed and what they do, then please head over to our show notes. We've, we've popped some details for you there. Uh, to learn a little bit more about VTX and what we do, then head over to our website at www.vtx-cpd.com. Please do, um, if you're on social media, give us a like, follow and share. Uh, and otherwise, we will see you next time.